Hello, welcome back. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Emily. We're the executive directors and co-founders of ATX TV. And you're listening to the TV Campfire. This week and coming up through the end of 2021, we're releasing exclusive and original conversations from our Season 10 Festival that premiered in June 2021. Please enjoy this week's release and tune in both here and on youtube.com backslash ATXTV for even more TV goodness. Without further ado, here's this week's TV Campfire episode from Season 10 of ATX TV Festival. Enjoy. Hello and happy Friday. We're heading into the second weekend of Season 10, a phrase I never thought I'd say. (laughs) But, you know, 2021, what else can you do? I'm Jennifer, the festival's director of programming, and this is Caitlin, one of our co-founders. We've changed a lot this year and are gathering in all new ways, but even with that, we can't wait to have you all back with us in Austin in 2022. In the meantime, we are proud to host the same level of conversations that we have for the past 10 years. As many of you know, we like to balance fan and industry conversations. And though most of the time, there's a lot of crossover between those two, which is why panels like this one are some of our favorites. While we've hosted panels on buying and selling TV series in the past, today's panel, Buying and Selling with 2020 Hindsight, is unlike any before, much like how 2020 itself stands alone as a year that shifted the industry and marketplace across the board. It has been wild to say the least. I'm excited to hear what what has stayed the same, what was a value, and what was a struggle. But I'm also excited that you'll see some familiar faces. We have advisory board members Kathleen McCaffrey and Brian Seabury, who have helped bring this panel as many as well as many previous executive conversations to light. They are our MVPs and we thank them immensely for helping always. With that, we're gonna go ahead and bring out our moderator, Daniel Feinberg of The Hollywood Reporter. Hey, Dan. Hey, y'all. It is always great to be at ATX TV Festival, even if we are not all together. I miss the brisket, but I am glad that the conversations will continue. As Caitlin and Jed said, I'm uh, Dan Feinberg, Chief Television Critic for The Hollywood Reporter, and you are here for Buying and Selling with 2020 Hindsight, where we are going to cover basically everything that has happened in the television industry over the past 15 months in 45 minutes. So fortunately, we have a tremendous panel of experts and executives, starting with Brian Seabury, who is the Executive Vice President of Drama Development for Broadcasting and Cable at CBS Studios. Hey, Brian. We have Kathleen McCaffrey, Senior Vice President of Programming for HBO. We have Ali Krug, Senior Vice President for Television at Annapurna TV. And we have Amanda Burrell, President of Team Downey. Welcome, all of you. Hello. And and unmute yourselves if you're currently muted. (laughs) (laughs) So we are recording this coming out of what is typically one of the biggest weeks of the television year. And so I want to start with Brian. This is this has just been Upfronts Week. And last year basically it kind of didn't happen at all. This year, it happened somewhat. It was a virtual process. Certain parts of the equation were there. Certain parts were not. I'm curious from your perspective, coming out of this huge week in the schedule, what percentage of normal would you say we are back to? 
<laughs> I don't know how to put that's a great way to put it although I don't know how to answer it in terms of percentages you know the if broadcast who is going to present their schedules you know to the advertisers and show it and they're going to launch in the fall they're presenting that you know they're presenting them uh, up front that that felt pretty normal when I, I I was waiting to find out what all the broadcast schedules would be I was especially awaiting what CBS's would be. We'll find out CW's soon enough. That felt like it always feels. I have nervous producers. I'm nervous on their behalves. They're nervous on their own behalves of if their pilot is going to get picked up. Um, you know, it necessarily coming out of the pandemic, we had several shows that were ordered straight to series, um, which, you know, hadn't been done probably as much in the past on broadcast. So not as many pilots shot, not as many pilots waiting to know if they're picked up or not, but a handful were pretty much in the same situation that you're in every May if you are a producing a broadcast pilot or for me at a studio with, you know, with pilots in the mix. Now, you mentioned, Brian, that there was more returning to, that there were more straight to series orders this time around, but there were still pilots. And this is always the time of year where everyone brings up Kevin Riley's famous 2014 declaration that pilot season was dead. And he was wrong at the time, but it begins to feel with each passing year like it's getting closer and closer to, if not being dead, to being a very, very different creature for what it was for so many years. Um, where do you think we stand on that? And what have the past 15 months done to either push pilot season towards death or to maybe affirm to some degree why it's important? I would, I read Leslie's piece and I, and I, and I saw you retweet it. Um, I, the jury is still out on that for me I, as kind of boots on the ground for needing to sell shows, you know, when, when do you sell them? They aren't written yet. Then they need to be, they need to be written. And if you are going to still shoot a pilot, if you're committed to shooting the pilot, that has to happen at, at a certain time. And, you know, I'll say if you are dealing within a certain genre, let's say, let's say that you are a broadcast network and you say, I really want a medical show this year, for instance, I'm not, to me, that tends to put me into a schedule of reading my medical pilot scripts and choosing the one I want to shoot as a pilot, or maybe even shooting the two I want to shoot as a pilot, and the one that I like the most gets ordered to series. And that kind of puts me back into that kind of a calendar. Um, now, if I have something that just feels in and of itself, if this script comes in as good as it can be, I'm not really judging it against others. Just, I love this idea. If it's great, then absolutely. I think broadcast networks can, if they get that script at an off cycle time, then they can shoot that as a pilot or shoot it straight to series. I think that that is probably more in their bag of tricks now than ever before. Um, but in the kind of pilots as R and D, I think that you probably want to shoot those, if not at the same time, at least at, at a time where you can kind of have them all look at them all together and make your decisions as to what's going to, what, what's going to go forward to series. So, okay. Kathleen, from your perspective, HBO does still do pilots. And that's another thing where 
because when Netflix broke into the suddenly we're ordering everything straight to series model, it became a conversation of our pilots in general for everybody going to vanish. And most people other than Netflix still have resolutely continued to do pilots. Have you, have you had to change really in the past 15 months, the volume or approach that you have to those? Are you getting closer to reducing your own version of pilot? Season. You know, I don't think we have a hard and fast rule about it. You know, in the last 15 months, we haven't really shot anything, which has been, you know, incredibly frustrating because one of the things, you know, at, at HBO that, you know, our, our development team is both current and development. So we have all these scripts that we've been working on that obviously we're not able to move forward as a result of the pandemic. But in terms of the piloting of something, I think we're very open. It, it really would depend on the piece. A lot of times, you know, there are many different ways to skin the cat. We, I personally really love a pilot process. I think there's a lot to learn from, from the cast and the director and not, there's so much to learn in that um, going, going through the whole process of the, the first episode. Um, but there are reasons to just jump into a series order right away, whether it be there's one director with a vision for the whole season. If you, if we're going to do some, you know, if we're going to pick something up for a whole season, we, almost always require all the scripts to be written first because that way, you know, so you, you have a roadmap for the series, you know what you're getting. Um, but I, I think that it will be, it really is show dependent. I think for something like a huge sci-fi show, you probably do, you know, whether financially advantageous or not, shoot a pilot just because you're going to want to see it. You know, it's going to be a huge investment. Whereas, you know, some of the smaller stuff that we do, we might be willing to take a bigger risk by just going forward. I think the way, you know, for us, it's always kind of case specific. Well, Ali and Amanda, from your perspectives as the sellers in this process, um, do the number of people who seem to be reducing the amount of pilot or pilots that they're ordering, does that impact either who you're going out to or how you look at whether the R&D, as Brian puts it, is important for what you guys do in the same way? Go ahead, Ali, you go first. Um, I would say it's sort of similar to what Kathleen said. I, I am also a fan of pilots. I'm in Albuquerque right now shooting a pilot. I think you learn a lot from the process. Um, the other thing that I think is could, you know, can be really useful um, is to get a series order, shoot a pilot. And I know you guys did this at HBO, Kathleen, a couple times where you shoot a pilot or you shoot the first episode and you go down for six weeks, you're able to evaluate that cost money and time, but you're able to evaluate um, the product and make adjustments for series. I don't think we shot an, a pilot earlier this year in February as well. I don't think it it um, I don't think it changes where we sell uh, a show. I think obviously if we're able to get a straight to series, like we'll take that if it's the right home and it's the right chemistry. But I don't think. I think there's value in the pilot process. So I don't think it changes. I think it's just case by case, like Kathleen said, personally. I think for our company, we prefer straight to series. <laughs> um, <laughs> just gonna be very honest. But I, but I have to say like, we have this big show Sweet Tooth that we did for Netflix. And we originally did a pilot for Hulu. And it was about a boy with antlers. You know, it's weird. <laughs> um, the tone was very specific. 
And so actually the pilot was, while you end up spending a lot of time building it, which you know can be very frustrating if it doesn't go to series, it was super helpful. Um, that said, you know, with Perry Mason for HBO, like we had to cross board a lot of it um, to make 1930s LA come to life, like to come to life. So we couldn't have ever piloted that. It would have been really, it would have been really tricky. So, um, and I do think, you know, what's sometimes developing pilots can can be challenging as well, because it's a lot of these days, I feel like the audience wants to use the pilot to settle in. Um, and if you're just, if that's your only example, then the settling in, you know, it can be a little bit, not entirely demonstrate, like it doesn't entirely demonstrate what the series is. So um, we spend a lot of time talking about it. It is case by case. Every show is different, um, but that's kind of how we think of it. Well, Amanda, in the case of Perry Mason in particular, yeah, I would say almost the first season is almost the pilot for that show. Honestly. And, well, is that a hard thing to pitch? Is that a hard thing to convince people that really and truly they're going to need a 10 hour movie in order to get it settled into what the show is? You know, it's interesting. It the the IP helped, I think, but also in some ways reinforced that we had to introduce the the character that we created in season one. He was a totally different guy, um, and a lot of it was, you know, we knew that we couldn't do the procedural expectation of a guy who just always got the person to confess on the stand. So we really felt what we loved is living in 1930s LA and world building in that way and really settling them into our world. So um, it, that wasn't a challenge, but you know, the, the challenge was having one case over the course of a season um, and really doing that while introducing all these other characters. Um, but yeah, there's no way that show could have piloted. The first episode, we don't even meet Tatiana. You know, you don't meet Chris Chalk, who are so vital in our series. Um, we really always thought of kind of the first two as the, like, you know, beginning. Um, but yeah, so I don't know if that helps. Kathleen, would you ever do something like that, a show that had that kind of development slash build without the IP, without knowing that you were getting people in on Perry Mason as a brand? I think we would. I'm trying to think if there's an example when we have. I think so. Again, it's like, you know, one of the things about that Perry Mason had is it's not only the IP, but also just an incredible team behind it and sort of tried, you know, tried and true, obviously tried and true producers and and writers that we had worked with for a long time. And, and also Tim Van Patten, who's been, you know, forever a member of our family. And so, um, you know, yes, the I, we all love having IP. I think it's like there's a security in having, you know, sort of a it already written where, you know, ideas already on a page somewhere. But I think it, for us, you know, it comes down to a vision and a voice and and sort of a trusted relationship. So I think, yeah, we would we would do something without IP, but it's, it is nice to have a built-in audience. My parents were thrilled about this pickup. So, you know, it's like nice to do something for them too. Now, I wanna back up a little bit. For all of you guys in your professional lives at this moment. I, I asked Brian to sort of quantify normal. Where are you guys standing in terms of normal? Are you going into offices at this point? Are you having in-person meetings yet? Or are you still living a virtual quarantine existence? I'm virtual. We're still virtual. We've done one staff meeting in person. Um, and it was kind of hilarious I think we like <laughs> gathered at someone's house and we've all forgotten how to talk to each other and it was very clunky um but it was also good to see my co colleagues but no we're still doing everything pitches generals everything is virtual 
Richmond. Yeah, us too. And we're, you know, we're going to open a production office soon and on a couple of shows. But other than that, like all, all of our team downy business is virtual. I am interested in what six months, what a pitch six months from now looks like. Is it, is it, we determine, is this a virtual pitch or an in-person pitch? Is that, could that we just were talking based? about that. What's going to happen? Yeah. I don't know. And from a seller's standpoint, yeah. you know, Kathleen just gets to sit back in her office and have us all come to her. But from a seller standpoint where I'm driving all over town, you know, I can frankly fit more into a day now if several of them are virtual. Um, and so I, I don't know if it, if it just opens up more kind of opportunity and uh, or kind of choice within my calendar and what a given day or week looks like, that could be a, a win. I agree. Like that's one thing we talk about is like the whole water bottle, the little water bottles and the valet ticket and the, you know, the whole thing, that dance that you end up doing that takes up hours of your day. Um, I think there's more efficiency to this. And also similar to Ali, I've spent six months in New Zealand and also pitched a show and like, you know, like you can actually do a lot more um, than like kind of be the one person on Skype, you know what I mean? Like, um, so it is gonna be also about like, what is the most efficient? Um, so we should just convince Kat to embrace the Zoom. <laughs> Listen, I'm so down. Here's the thing I would say, because I feel like this is, the exhaustion comes from like the fact that I keep staring at myself on a pitch, you know what I mean? Cause you try to like, obviously you know how hard it is for the writer and you wanna be emotive and responsive, but it's like, then I'm like, oh God, oh no. Uh, so one, there was one pitch where the writer, God love him. He was like, okay, executives like turn your cameras off. And then he let us pitch until with our cameras off. And then we came back on and we bought it. Cause I was like, I could feel like I could be more engaged and I was distracted by like, like my lines. That's a helpful tip. The other it, was great. it was great. So I'd be so down as long as I can turn my camera off. We got a helpful tip just for your own psyche to turn <laughs> self view off because you don't go through life looking at yourself. No. If you're in a meeting or all life, you're always looking at others. And invariably, if your camera's on, your eye is kind of drawn to your own face. And that is like not healthy. It's horrible. It's not, with not but like, I don't think I'm going to turn off self view. Really? <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> like, I think I would be too stressed now that we've done. If someone said like the yeah. etiquette is self turn off self view, like March 18th I, of last year, I would have been like, great. But the fact that we've gone like right. a whole <laughs> year and a half yeah. of us like, stare like you know what's the angle like i just it's like it's but i don't nobody know gonna know, but nobody knows that your self view is turned off i, know, but I, we know. Is on. I agree i'd be like how do i look right now how do i look right now <laughs> yeah. you guys are missing out you got to turn off this self have self view on right now brian or i just have you? four squares up oh. <laughs> no way i know yeah <laughs> brave a little skeptical but okay if you great brian yeah, it actually look great. Um, am I in the middle of the frame? Am I off camera? <laughs> I think there's something though, like, uh, like you know, missing though about these these Zoom meetings and these Zoom pitches. I don't think we'll ever fly someone out from London to pitch anymore. Like that just doesn't feel realistic. But that's something that we would budget for and and spend money on. But I think there's you you sort of miss you know, the camaraderie of like, let's do a dinner after our final pitch. Let's huddle in the valet after the pitch, as opposed to like, 
should we get back on Zoom? Like, I know that's obviously connection is something that is not just a um, entertainment industry, you know, thing that we've all been missing over, over the course of the last year and a half. But, but I do, I do wonder if, if, you know, we are going back to back to back and, and, and we are being so efficient. And I think all of us are probably busier than ever. And there's not a break for lunch. There's not a break, you know, for breakfast. There's not a break from meeting to meeting. And like, is that sustainable? And, and how does that work long term? I know I've just been thinking a lot about that and thinking a lot about it for my team and the work life balance of it all. And so we'll see how it plays out. The 1 p.m. lunch break is a real thing like that. I we tried yeah. to reinstate it, but it just it, it all blends together. But you, it was really something that was a nice moment, because even if you didn't have an actual lunch, you got to read a script or just take a beat and like just collect your thoughts. And that I feel that's been really what happened to how do we all decide we weren't going to do it anymore? It's so weird. Not to mention everybody has my cell phone number. Everyone text text everyone. I know. I know. know. And it's efficient. Like it's, it's like you said, like super efficient. I'm texting network executives and writers all day long and agents like, but, and, and it's great. It's efficient, but it's also there, there, I think there have not been as many boundaries uh, this last year and a half. Uh, not that there's so there are no boundaries. boundaries. Yeah, no. it's not that there's ever boundaries, but like, um, and it's a good thing because it's there's connection, a deeper connection. Actually, weirdly, I think if you're talking in real time, but it's also, um, yeah. I do think your the the concern about your team though is is vital there. It's not just the work life balance, but I feel like I like my assistants out of the loop more. You know what I mean? And I worry a little bit about you know learning like mentoring like my assistant was on every call they were like in the office with me when I was having a bad day like if I go to have a bad day now I kind of ghost a little bit you know what I mean and I mean but you know what I mean it's like not um like so I I do wonder how what the impact will be on the younger generation who we all benefited from such informality of like oh you're actually in you know that it just feels like that might be the missing piece here that we have to rectify no Something Ali mentioned that I think is is interesting and something that kind of fascinates me about this whole prospect is, you know, okay, so you're not flying someone in from London and that's kind of, that's a change in the process. But sort of the positive would be is that someone, say a writer in Kansas who might never under any other circumstance have had the opportunity to meet with the head of someone at Annapurna, et cetera, would suddenly have that opportunity because they just need to get on Skype. Have you guys felt that that's been something that you've been able to do is get different people into the room now that the room is virtual. You know, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say, I can't think of a specific, like, but in terms of staffing rooms, I found that writers, especially playwrights in New York, who ordinarily it feels like a massive leap to become, you know, to go from being a playwright Pretty right in New York to opening a life in LA and having to make that transition. Um, we've had great success. Like we've had way more, I think, diverse and exciting voices that are in the rooms. I can't speak to it in pitch form just yet, um, but I do, I, I can't imagine that, I know all of my writer friends are talking about the flexibility of where they are in the world and, I, and not having to make that commitment to living in Los Angeles. I, I can't imagine there wouldn't be that opportunity. I don't know. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. No, but I, I can't think of a specific ahead. example either, but there's certainly no reason why that couldn't happen. And the other thing, just to add on to what Amanda was saying, we have a writer, it just, the opportunity becomes so much greater. We have actually, I can think of two examples of writers we have deals with who were able to do multiple rooms at once. So there was like, they were up at 6 a.m. to do a room in London. Then they did a like a room on the East Coast, then a room on the West Coast in the afternoon. So there's just more you know, there's more opportunity just because you don't have to, like, you, you don't have to move anywhere and set up your whole life. You can just kind of, you can literally do three rooms at one time all over the world. Um, and, and the rooms, I think, obviously, I'm like, I'm, I'm making this sound like that's like a, that's a long day, but also the rooms are much shorter because people say the thing with the burnout. So I feel like there's a lot of um, uh, unexpected opportunity that came from this in a way that, uh, you know, I was like, I guess she can do 6am here and then nine and then 9am and then 12. <laughs> and she's like, I'm down, we can do it. Like, I just won't go for a run in the morning. And you're like, okay, great. Like, you know, so that, um, but to your question, like, there's no reason I think anything's kind of possible. And we're learning it as we go. I, I do know of a couple of instances where casting found somebody like on TikTok and they thought they were fascinating or following them. And they put together a meeting of comedy, drama, that person, you know, within a within a day or two, we were all on a Zoom talking to this person about their life, which you're right, they they were, you know, they were all over the, they were in, not in LA in either of the instances that I'm thinking of, and it happened quickly. And they, they were able to meet with that team as if, as if, you know, they were in LA or meet in the same way that you would if you were in LA, because we were all meeting virtually. So it didn't feel any different than any other meeting. That's that's a great point that Brian brings up about casting just in general and how casting has changed in, you know, this entire situation. You know, obviously, if you're casting A-list star X or Y, you know, it, it makes less difference whether or not you have a rapport with them, whether you're seeing how they project in person, any of that stuff. But if you're casting almost anything in which it's, you know, a young actor or an unknown actor, how different is it doing it on this format and how has that changed this process for, from your perspectives? We've done a lot of casting, uh, you know, over, over zoom. It's, it's, it's interesting. I, I think I, I know a lot of show creators that we're working with will do the audition and then we'll see the audition, but also ask to um, include like, you know, you know, things about themselves to just really try to get to know the person and connect with the person even before there's, you know, a chemistry read or the director works with someone over Zoom. The other thing we're doing, um, table reads are like very odd over Zoom. And we've been doing pre-table reads and like just, I don't know, um, Amanda or Brian, if you're doing that at all, but like we do like test runs, which is also kind of like a weird, you know, a weird new thing over Zoom just to make sure everybody like can sync up correctly, the, you know, logistics work. So that's a whole new thing, I think, during this time. I, I spoke to an actress over the weekend who's quite accomplished. And she was just telling me how difficult self-taping herself at home during COVID has been. She has four dogs. She has a professional husband who can't go to the office. And she and she's trying to find time or she needs to work with a director. I mean, and the, this is nerve wracking. This is her job. She's trying to put her best performance out there. And it sounded incredibly difficult to not be able to go in to a casting director's office or just have that safety. And because and, casting has been going on 
you know, for the past, whatever it is, seven, seven months that we've been able to get back into it. It's been really hard from her, from her side. And uh, we just heard from the casting directors. They're so bummed out. Like they love doing that. They love being in the room with the actors and directing them and all of that stuff. So, but I do think, I think the international, I mean, the business has gone so international now too, that actually there's, there's opportunity in that, um, that they would self tape anyway on zoom. But I do think that energy is missing for a lot of actors who love that process. Now, I want to go back to when, say, in April and May, there was kind of the tentative return to production. What do you guys remember about sort of the instinct to get back into production on things simply to get people employed again, you know, to, to be sort of the responsible employer in this industry? and sort of what your feelings were when it was things like the, the quarantine episodes that several CBS shows did or something like Coastal Elites. What, what was the thought process in your mind of not knowing when anything was ever going to be able to return, even to the sort of protocol version that it was later, but still needing to get people paychecks, basically? Producers? I was just going to say, like, let's remember that in March of last year, everybody was like, oh, it'll be fine by May. And then they were like, oh, it'll be fine by summer. So it kind of really evolved. I mean, we, as producers, I feel like you're never taking your foot off the gas and there's a panic about it. But for us, it was always like, okay, how do we just keep it till the next thing? We were fortunate enough to have a show that was in New Zealand um, and started prep in July. And we kind of couldn't believe that that was like not, they were not, <laughs> they didn't have COVID really there um, and our, our luck in that. Um, so it was all kind of a learning curve, but it was thinking back, like the weird thing is, I don't think we thought it would last as long as it was going to. So we just kind of kept deluding ourselves and just keeping going, um, as much as we could. I don't know if you guys had that experience as well. Yeah, we had, um, we had one show that was in post-production had wrapped in February of 2020. And so we got kind of lucky and we were posting remotely and, that had its own kind of set of things to work out and work through, but then we did. And then we pushed production to this, some production to this year. And then we honestly just ended up um, focused on selling and, and sold, I think, 12 things in, from the course of like April to October. And then everything kind of, I think, well, Kathleen, you can speak to this, but I think there was a, a, a buying frenzy a little bit, or we had a lot more luck. And then kind of come October, it was like, everybody was like, we got to put put a pause, we have to focus on production, we have to get the things through uh, to, you know, that's in the pipeline to, to get starting to prep. So we weren't pushing for production um, to start, we were more focused on development and just were, were just monitoring how things were going and trying to set dates that felt realistic and doable and safe for 2021. The great bottleneck of end of 2020 up till now in 2021 for us uh, sellers and, and for and for and for know, buyers, yeah, and for for buyers trying to get their, their projects onto the air is very real and continues. And what have you guys learned about the the sticker shock of uh, COVID protocol production and how it's changed everything? Because I've definitely heard the stories of both the longer shooting process on episodes and whatnot, but also just the amount of extra money to test everyone as much as you have. 
how how did you respond initially when you saw what that was looking like and how has that shifted in the seven or eight or nine months since it's become a little bit more normal for us it's you can't put a price on safety like yeah. we, you know like we first and foremost everybody has to be safe and healthy and that was always a priority and so what, what can you do you can't control yeah. the pandemic so it was like we got to do what we got to do she's right there's only two options there's either don't shoot the shows or do them as safely as possible and as safely as possible comes with a big price tag and at a time when I think companies are as challenged as ever financially, it is it is um, incredibly difficult. And yet, getting the getting product out there and making these shows, it seems like every company across the board has decided they're going to do it, um, and and they will figure out what that means financially. But it was it it was determined to keep moving forward and to not just kind of shut down and wait until you can shoot them at the same price that they used to be shot. I mean, I would just say like, you know, people took it really seriously from jump and while it's, it's extensive, I mean, it's, and you just don't realize how it touches every facet. It's like the the quarantine period of two weeks of putting people up in a hotel room of having like every facet and then getting on set and stuff. But I have to say like the networks, um, were and the studios were really supportive and kind of absorbed a lot of it and didn't at least for us like on our shows it was a, like we're like holy you know but but at the same time I, I think that I think that the spirit was like let's just keep everybody safe so it it didn't feel like ugly like we were bartering with someone who was who was not clear on the on the stakes and obviously we tried to find workarounds like for us you know um we two shows that we're about to premiere obviously we still have to keep a schedule right we still you know like subscribers that need shows and so um in treatment and white lotus are two upcoming shows that were born out of COVID. it was like okay in treatment is such a beautiful format for this it's two people sitting six feet apart um and white lotus they took over a hotel that otherwise wasn't getting business in a white you know so you, you find the ways around it but it, yes it's 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 but those were there's the sticker shock of it, but they're also sort of like more contained They're good. And still, as long as the writing's good, it, it was, we found, you, you find, a, you can find a good show, even when you don't, you're not in a big sort of ensemble sci-fi piece. You can, you know, you can find good entertainment. And so that was in, it was actually fun. Although we're to our earlier point about being in a room together, the, I, I was the executive on treatment and we conceived it. It was pitched written shot and wrapped and now premiering this weekend without me ever meeting and never having a dinner with the showrunners never meeting the actors like they were sending me videos of like everyone's last day and it's just it's such a different world and to ali's point like somebody just want to go celebrate and like i also was the executive on almost all the shows that premiered in 2020 and like the things like we didn't have our premiere parties like there's no moment to celebrate the work amanda we were supposed to have like a huge fancy premiere party that just got shut down and so those um anyway this was just going back to an earlier point of like the the difference in the um sort of the familial nature of making television it's been really hard like this well but with something like an in treatment obviously ease is going to be something that's going to be high on the list of of assets it has how much are you guys looking at things when they come in the door and is that being sort of one of the top two or three things that's on your agenda you know can we make this is there a thing that's obviously going to make this unmakeable under some circumstance? And how does that change just how you look at a script when it lands in front of you? 
I think that's what Ali was when Ali was referring to the sort of the the frenzy that happened in the, of selling. It was sort of like we were all like, what can we make now? What can we do? Is there, are there formats we should be getting or what can we get on our air? Um, now it feels a little more normal. Like, I feel like now that we're coming out of it, the light, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. We're evaluating material in, in, the, in the way we used to. Like, let's get a great script and we can go about it in an almost normal way. So I feel like it's we've come back around, I think. I hope, knock on wood. But there are genres that feel like you simply can't do them at this moment or or a script on the first page that has a nightclub scene with 200 people. You just go, okay, well, that's not a thing we can do at this point. Or, or are we moving past that? I think we're moving past it, but I'll say my two examples um, on both shows I work on too. Sorry, I'm talking so much, but I'll make it quick. The two Euphoria um, standalone episodes that we did, we were supposed to start shooting regularly Euphoria, but they're, to your point, huge crowd scenes and people close together. And those, so that was our answer to that. We wanted to keep the momentum and keep it going, keep something on the air for everybody, like keep those these characters on the air, but we did it siloed. And now we're back shooting the regular season. Um, and same thing for the Nevers. We shut we are we shut down mid season and we just are now on hiatus between, you know, we broke it into two parts because a show like that, which is big crowds, big stunts, stuff like that, we just wanted to wait till everyone was safe and sort of on the other side of it. So I, I'm happy that things are sort of feeling like going back to normal. I, I think we got pitched so many kind of COVID post apocalyptic uh sort of uh funny enough <laughs> i went back to my office to pick something up and on a whiteboard we have like areas arenas and one of the things on it was like pandemic as as something like like you know like like an international global like thriller like you know like i like set in a pandemic like obviously erasing that um but i think like one of the things that we're still just looking for, and I'm happy that things feel like they're getting back to normal, is just great stories, great voices, um, strong visions, you know, and, and thinking about subverting a genre in a different, unexpected way. I think for me personally and for Annapurna, we're looking for things that feel hopeful and feel um and 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 there's like a protagonist that is like a survivor of some kind, not like you know, apocalyptic or a pandemic, but like that has like a grit and a strength. Like, I think we're all kind of responding to the sort of heroes in our world and in our country that have sort of prevailed and persevered. And, so, but I also want to see like, I want to go to Greece. I want to go to like the, an island. I want escapist. I want fun. I want smart. And I want the show to like say something, but I think things should feel entertaining right now. I think we all need that. Are there genres that feel like they're they're dead? There were a lot of people who during the during the last presidential administration said that they simply had no interest in hearing political pitches anymore because they got too much of their politics in the real world. So you were just talking about that, Ali. Are, does it feel like there are genres that right now none of you guys want any part of for 12 months? You feel uh, if everybody's been inside <laughs> for over a year, the idea of television as escape and a triptych in whatever it can be. And that kind of escapism is, is well, I'm gonna be focused there. And escape, again, to echo Ali, escapist doesn't mean surfacy or like it can be as, as complicated and, and incredible as storytelling is out there. But I do think, you know, really transporting people feels like the way to go to me. Yeah, I think we just don't want to perpetuate anxiety <laughs> within our audience, you know? Um, we're already feeling enough and, Certainly it's like, you know, 
hope and you know like we just need to all hear that we all need to hear we're going to be okay we don't want a lot of bleakness we as a company team downy's never been really trafficked in either bleak or political but i think it's also we don't want to be preachy you know we don't want to be um kind of high horse about it i think we just want to get inside characters and be aspirational and hopeful um and complex like i mean there should be some darkness and drama but but yeah i would just underline everything that everybody said for sure and this is sort of we we talked so much about covid i feel like i want to at least talk briefly about something that was going to happen in the industry regardless of whether or not any of this stuff happened and this is sort of just been looking at the past few weeks in the past few months about the blurring lines between linear and streaming. And this is obviously such a big issue that it could be, you know, another 45 minutes, but I still just at least want to touch on it. When you have something like in the past week, we've had Clarice and SEAL Team and Evil that have just simply gone from CBS to Paramount Plus, and that's kind of the advantage of vertical integration or something like industry premieres on HBO. And then, you know, the episodes all come on HBO Max a few weeks later. Do, do you feel as if this is a blur that has been to some degree precipitated by the changes of the past few months? Was it coming anyway? Do the lines still even exist in your mind and will they exist in five years? Like, are we going to a point where it's just going to be these big behemoths and things kind of float freely between all of them? Probably Kathleen and Brian are the first thoughts on that one. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I don't mean to punt... I, I think about it more in terms of as a development executive, how does it affect the way that I'm thinking about designing my shows? And I, I have to say it, it hasn't changed uh, a lot. You know, I'm still just trying to find writers with incredible voices with something to say and do it in a way that you're going to, we're going to go pitch a show that I want to watch and hopefully a buyer embraces it. And that can, you know, within my kind of ecosystem, that's a that's pretty similar when I'm thinking about, you know, CBS or CW or Showtime or Paramount Plus, like they each have their own lanes and creative lanes. But I don't think it it doesn't change whether it's going to be kind of direct to consumer or on ad driven or something it doesn't really change a lot about how you go about the job of developing the show. Kathleen? That's exactly what I was going to say. Our assignment has not changed, truly. And, and you know, I still work to program the linear HBO, and there's a separate uh, programming team for HBO Max. But this said, this sort of, you know, this landscape has given us more. I've been at HBO a long time. We used to program, you know, like eight shows a year total or something. It was Sunday night, 9 p.m., that was it. And now we're doing four times that. And so the opportunity to make stuff is greater. And to Brian's point, like we are still like find the best storytellers, maintain the brand, but do what you do, do it more, but just continue to do what you do. So that's been, that's been the mandate. It hasn't changed. It's not changing. It's, you know, we've sort of eye on the prize and, 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 you know, still taking reading scripts, taking me, doing all the same things we always did. We're just doing more of it, yeah. which, is, well, which is a good thing. It's nice to see things get made. But Ali and Amanda, does it make it harder to pitch from your perspective if there's this much flexibility or does it become easier if you know you can just go to, to someone at Warner Brothers and it'll find the right home eventually? Or do you prefer to target, I want this to be on HBO Max show, on HBO show, a Paramount Plus show, a CW show? We, we can partner with other studios like a Warner Brothers or Sony or, um, you know, but we often generate our own material and then pitch it to 
um, pitch it to the outlets ourselves. Um, so we don't decide we're pretty flexible and nimble. And I think that's sometimes the power of an independent studio. It's also the challenge of an independent studio when we're not vertically integrated, but I think it just depends on, you know, how the pitches go, you know, uh, what, what, what's the right home for it. Are people passionate? Do they see the show in the same way? Are they aligned with our creator's vision? And then we sort of decide that way, I would say. Yeah, for us, we have a deal at HBO. Um, so, you know, we always would love to work with them. Uh, but I do think, and then and then it's always about the passion of the executive across across the Zoom table. Um, it's always about the person who's, who's honestly just gets it. And because you just know that that's going to, and then you can design it, you know, whether it's for binge or whether like you can kind of have those conversations and, and the, the networks are so open to those conversations as early as possible anyway. So, so I feel like it's it's actually not that I'm like different than it was. And just as a last question to kind of wrap things up, and it's sort of a bunch of stuff we've been circling around, but one thing from the before times about in, the way the industry worked that you really miss and can't wait to go back to, and one thing about the way the industry worked before times that you just never want to return to? Well, I do think that all of those little plastic bottles of water are very problematic on a on a number, number of levels. So let's never go back to that. Who else, who else has, has one? <laughs> Dan, Dan, please, somebody else. <laughs> well, I'll repeat myself and just say, like, I really can't wait for a general meeting just to meet a writer and maybe, God forbid, like have a martini with somebody and just like ha talk about ideas and, and share creativity. Um, this said, as I, literally as I'm making this point, I'm like having anxiety about having a meal with people. So I don't, I, like, I just don't know, like a, like a sober lunch with somebody I eat alone in my kitchen. I don't know how I'm going to ever do it again. So. <laughs> we'll see. I really am looking forward to being on set without a mask. My skin is really looking forward to that. Um, but also, honestly, it's weird when you uh, don't see your crew's face you know, from, from this point on. Um, so I, there's a lot of connections that I'm looking forward to. Being in the office, it's a creative endeavor. You know, I'm at a studio with, with teams, you know, cable team and broadcasting, a lot of people and, and, and the kind of ideas, maybe it's the idea on that script or maybe it's a show idea, whatever it is that tends to not come from the meeting where you said, let's sit down and talk about the idea. You know, it tends to come when you're talking about other things and you're talking about your life or whatever, great ideas can come from that and people are spitballing. And I think our days are so scheduled that there's not as much time for that. And that's where I think some great creativity comes from in our business. So I, I, I miss that and look forward to getting back to it. Okay, thank you all so much for watching at home. And thank you, Ali, Amanda, Kathleen, and Brian for the great conversation. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to ATX TV's original series, The TV Campfire. To watch these panels and more, please visit youtube.com backslash ATX TV. For details on the festival, go to atxfestival.com. And information on our membership program can be found at atxfestival.com backslash membership. Follow us at ATX Festival on all social media. As always, please rate and review. We appreciate each and every one of you for listening and a simple click or brief comment can help us grow and have other TV lovers like yourselves find us. Feels like enough information, right? Yep. Till next time, keep watching TV.